Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask that you'd come now. And like we do Sunday after Sunday, ask that you would meet us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to show us yourself, to show us the glories of your son Jesus, to show us ourselves and to change us more and more into his image by the power of the Spirit. So come now, I pray, and help us see what we need to see, hear what we need to hear, be comforted and convicted and encouraged and exhorted where we need it, that none of us would leave this place the same. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, uh, we live in a world that seems like everything is on display. I don't know if you've noticed that, but everything about everyone is plastered all over everywhere. Uh, you have it right in your hands, right? You, you have it right at your fingertips all the times, right? Pictures of morning devotionals, right? Hashtag coffee with my best friend, right? Stuff like that that we see all over. Just updates on, hey, going to get groceries. Uh, service projects, vacations, what you had for a meal, right? All that fills up our phones and our attention, and this isn't, this isn't new, like the human uh, psyche has always wanted to be seen and, and recognized. These, these tools have just given us new ways, more powerful, accessible ways to do it. And along with that, uh, success can often be measured in likes or hearts, right? Bigger seems better, and fame is often equated with faithfulness. We measure things by these various Metrics And of course, all of the posting, even though we don't want to admit it, is meant to say something about us, right? Some kind of representation of our identity that's on display for the whole world, right? I want you to know this about me. We're, we've looked inside, we've seen something, we've felt something, we want others to see it and recognize it with us. But what's so interesting to me is that's not the way we see Jesus operate or how we're called to follow him. Consider this verse that I had written down that Alan just prayed, Isaiah 52, 3. This is Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Right? Not exactly an influencer, someone that you would follow, someone that you'd go to for all your tips on a successful life, right? Talk a lot and get persecuted, right? That's the road that Jesus puts before us. But maybe we'd say, you know, it's our job to to be big and to, to be famous and to have influence, But listen to the way Jesus talks about just the the day in, day out life of those who follow him. Matthew 6, 3 and 4 says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. It doesn't sound like it's on display, right? Or Matthew 6, 6, just a few verses later, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, the the picture of Christ and Christians is that Jesus was faithful all the way to his ultimate rejection in his crucifixion at the cross, trusting the plan he had made with his father, right? Not esteemed by men, but stricken by men, right? Crucified by men who rejected him. In the story of Joseph, what's so amazing, to me at least, as as a human who, like you, likes attention, (laughs) likes recognition, wants people to notice. What's so amazing is that time and time again, when no one is watching him, when no one is complimenting him, when no thanks is being given, when no recognition is being had, Joseph honors the God who is with him and has kept him. Joseph doesn't have his identity, his sense of worth wrapped up in success or recognition or vocation. His identity is secure in the God who is with him. Right from the very beginning all the way till now. And this is our calling as a church. A church praying that God would empower us to this kind of hidden faithfulness as we love the God who is with us because of Jesus, as we love each other sacrificially, and as we love others around us no matter where we are. I want us to be a a church whose identity is not found in publicity, (laughs) that we're a big deal or people notice us or people look to us, but rather is rooted in being a family that's amazed that we're in Christ. Like looking around going, can you believe that Jesus has saved us, all of us together in this family? A kind of hidden faithfulness that walks with Jesus and knows the reward of fellowship with him is more than enough for us beyond any reward or recognition that we could have from any other place. So let's dive in and see this kind of hidden faithfulness in the life of Joseph. Point number one, compassion and confidence in God. Look at verses one to four with me first. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them And he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. So remember last week, Joseph has been wrongfully accused, thrown into prison, and the inmates are running the prison. Joseph is basically running the prison at this point. And as he's waiting there in some kind of prison dungeon-type situation, it looks like it's at Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard, in come this cupbearer and Baker with these offenses. Now, they were really important roles to the king, right? You might not think a cupbearer or a baker was that important, but they were the ones responsible for getting the very food and drink to him in a way that was sustaining to him, but also what? Safe, right? Safe. They kept him safe as there were all these power struggles that would go on in these these places where people might come after him. So their job was very important. They were held in high regard. Now, we don't know what offense they committed, but it must have been a big deal for these two to mess up so much that he removes them from their posts and he throws them 
in prison. They would have been daily helpers to him, daily directors in his household, and here he's putting them in prison. And he puts them in Potiphar's house, and they are now under the care of Joseph. So here we have folks probably guilty of something, and Joseph is called to care for them in prison when we know he is not actually guilty. Now, if that was you and these guilty prisoners come in or put under your charge and you know that you're not guilty, wouldn't there be some frustration, (laughs) some bitterness that would rise up in you? Certainly, Joseph would be prone to just do the bare minimum, right? Do the bare minimum. Engage them only when he had to. Maybe stew on the injustice of it all. That's not what's going on in Joseph. Look at verses 4 to 7, 5 to 7 here. And one night... They both dream, both of these officers, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams And there's no one to interpret them. Now in our culture, if you had these dreams, we're mostly prone to just kind of write it off, right? It must have been something we ate, right? It was the pizza we had or the wings we had the night before. The the Bible paints a little bit different picture. I'm going to talk about that more next week, that the place of dreams and kind of the, the providence and revelation of God. But what we know about Egypt for sure is that in Egypt at this time, a dream was considered an important piece of information about who you were or what was coming for you. And another thing on top of that is that when people had similar dreams, it was thought to be a mark of even more certainty. So in Egypt, in this moment, at this time, because of the importance of these dreams, there were actually professional dream interpreters that you would go to and get help from. Unfortunately for these guys, there were none of those in prison, right? They didn't care about your well-being so much in prison. And so these two, having similar dreams, are troubled to not know what they mean. How do we know they're troubled? How do we know they're troubled? We know amazingly, (laughs) this is amazing to me, because Joseph, who is imprisoned despite his innocence, comes in to care for them, and in his diligence and his compassion, he notices they're troubled. He's not just going through the motions of his job. He's really caring. He's really leaning in. That's how we know. He's still able, despite being betrayed, despite being sold, despite being enslaved, despite being imprisoned, all completely unjustly, to look at humans made in God's image and somehow see their pain and sadness and want to care for them, even though he's been completely (laughs) thrown to the side. His heart somehow has not been hardened. And as I read this story, it reminded me of a scene with Jesus. You remember the scene, if you've read your Bible, where he's hanging on the cross He's completely innocent. He's been betrayed, broken, beaten, dying for our sins. And yet, speaking to the guilty criminal next to him 
with tenderness and care, inviting him into the way of salvation. Some of us in this room have been hurt by others, and if we're honest, it's begun to harden us. You feel it, right? You, you, you feel it, especially when you're around that person that's hurt you. <laughs> and you feel it kind of as this low hum in your life, just this hardness, this sense of injustice, this sense of pain that you're going to take out and comes out in these funny places. How did that not happen in Joseph? Like, how didn't that happen? And the only answer I can come up with is the presence and awareness and fellowship with the God who is with him despite all else, a deep abiding fellowship and trust that says God's got me and therefore I don't need to look to anyone else or anything else for my joy or my comfort or my identity or my security. Now we've all seen someone we can tell is in pain and we've had a moment to make a decision, right? (laughs) You see someone hurting, You see they're in pain, you have a moment, right? Kids, maybe you've seen a friend or a family member that's sad. Adults, maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor or someone at church or wherever. And the decision is, do I lean into this pain and see what's there? Or do I keep going to stay on schedule and avoid what could be really messy? And Joseph, again, amazingly, doesn't just notice, but he asks them. He says, why, why are you downcast today? You're, you're, you're different today. I've noticed that you're not doing well today. What's going on? Tell me. He's seeking to listen and care. And they tell him they've had dreams and there's no one to interpret. And Joseph, who has been kept from bitterness and from sin because of the presence and power of God, also has confidence that he can help because of the presence and power of God. Of God. He's had some experience with dreams before. And in verse 8, Joseph says to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So he sees their pain, he asks about it, and then what he does, he's pointing them to God for help. He said, I know someone who can help you, I know someone who can give you the answers you need. He's had dreams like this before and been able to understand them, and so he knows God can do this. And this would have been quite a statement. Again, these professional dream interpreters in Egypt would have claimed their power to come from this pantheon of gods in Egypt and particular ones that could interpret dreams and make things known. But rather than waiting to trust the wisdom of some professionals and all the various gods they represented, Joseph is appealing here to the power and presence and knowledge and help of the one true God as an enslaved foreigner who has no right to claim any of this kind of power or knowledge. In a culture far from the true God and with those sinning to the point of imprisonment in their culture being the ones that he's with, Joseph is both compassionate and convictional. He's both caring and confident. Again, how? Because he knows the promises of God. He knew God was with him. Kids, you're growing up in a world that wants to teach you. Imagine being Joseph. Okay, we think, we think right now in this cultural moment that we're in, we think that we don't quite fit. Imagine being Joseph in Egypt 
with Pharaoh's, some of Pharaoh's top people, with this pantheon of gods, there's not a place where you don't fit more. If you trust in the true God, he's completely adverse to all that they're about. They'd be completely against him. They'd think he was crazy. And kids, you're growing up in a world that wants to teach you that if you disagree with someone, you also have to dislike them and be really angry about it. And I just want to tell you, it's not true. It's not true. And it's not Christian. (laughs) You can disagree and you can still love people. You can believe the truth and love those who don't. You can know the truth and even help those and move towards those who don't know it or don't like you. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a death for who? What did we read before? While we were the best, while we were good, or while we were yet sinners, did Christ die for us? He was the truth, right? Jesus is the truth. And he loved and died for those who hated him. Church, in a polarized world, <laughs> in a culture that often disagrees, in places where our belief in the true God will likely not be popular, are we secure enough to follow Jesus in this? To follow Joseph in this? Do we know that we've been saved from our sins, not by our own works, but by grace? That's a radical thing to believe and live. Do we know that we're sustained as a people and a church until eternity, not by our own works, our own knowledge, but by grace? Do we believe in our inheritance because of the blood of Jesus, looking forward to the promises that are coming so that we don't cling to the things that are here like we're losing everything, but instead be secure in our identity so that we can be compassionate and convictional, caring and confident. Joseph, we'll find out later, I think, and we find out in Hebrews, is, is looking to the reward. <laughs> he's looking to the promise. He's, he's looking to the deliverance from God. And therefore, in this moment, nothing is ultimately up for grabs for him. He can just lean in with the people in front of him and care for them and trust in God's providence. Point number two, information and interpretation by God in verses 9 to 19. So in verses 9 to 15, we get the cupbearer's dream and Joseph's interpretation from God. In this dream, there's a vine and three branches that are filled up with blossoms that then turn into grapes. The cupbearer takes those grapes and presses them into Pharaoh's cup and places it into his hand. And like Joseph's dreams earlier, these dreams are not that difficult to understand but the interpretations are coming from God. Joseph says the three branches are three days and that in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your place where you were before. So how did Joseph know this? Well, we know that Joseph said these things belong to God. So God reveals these things to Joseph. I don't know exactly how he did that. The text doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but somehow God lets Joseph know this is what's gonna happen and Joseph makes it known to them. God is showing his power through a seemingly weak vessel, a foreign prisoner. How will we know if this is truly from God? How do we know if these kinds of things are truly from God? We'll know if it comes true. 
We'll know if it comes true. If, if what he says is going to come to pass comes to pass. But for now, in this moment, the author has made it clear that God is the interpreter of dreams. And so Joseph is operating in his power. And in verses 14 to 15, after interpreting this, Joseph makes a pretty simple request. He says this. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. In other words, I have moved towards you in your pain and your guilt. Would you remember me in my pain and my innocence? I was stolen, falsely accused, and I'm stuck. Just mention me, please. If I've helped you at all, would you just help me out a little bit? It doesn't seem to be too much of a request. Well, in verses 16 to 19, it seems like the baker is excited because his colleague got a good interpretation, right? We all want good news. (laughs) We all long for good news. And so in his dream, there are three cake baskets on his head. Not exactly sure what a cake basket looks like. But there's three of these things on his head holding various goods for Pharaoh. And in the top basket on his head, there are a bunch of baked goods. But unlike the dream, right, with the cupbearer, where it's very personal, he's restored and he's pressing the grapes and handing them to Pharaoh, the baker's not giving these goods to Pharaoh, but instead the birds are eating them out of his basket. And Joseph gives another interpretation from God. This one is not as nice. It's not good news. He says in verses 18 and 19 that the three baskets, like the three branches, are three days, and that in three days Pharaoh will put him to death and the birds will eat him. To be a faithful follower, messenger of the king, we have to be willing to say what he says when it's really good, happy things, and when it's really hard, sad things, and that's what Joseph does. And so at this part of the story, we are waiting to find out, is God powerful enough to keep his story going? Is God powerful enough that he got these dreams right? If these dreams come true, then maybe the earlier dreams that Joseph had of his rise to power could still come true. Point number three, foretelling and forgotten by Man, listen to verses 20 to 22. On the third day then, which was Pharaoh's birthday, Pharaoh made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So on the third day, Pharaoh has a party on his birthday. It was probably quite the affair, probably a a big party. He brings his two imprisoned servants before the party. And one, he restores the cupbearer and he gets to immediately resume his job, put the cup in Pharaoh's hand, a sign of honor, I'm welcoming you back. And the other he puts to death, showing that Joseph was right or more to the point God (laughs) was right. God is powerful. 
God is showing, we have to think about this, we could just read the story and miss it, but God is showing himself here mighty and powerful in the midst of the birthday party of the Pharaoh of Egypt and the pantheon of gods in the land. In, in the midst of all this here, God is saying, I'm God, I'm king. Dreams belong to me. Power belongs to me. This display of power, this birthday party, the celebration of how great Pharaoh is, is nothing compared to me. But notice, it's hidden, right? God is at work. His power is on display and no one knows it. God is still with Joseph. God is still near to him and helping him. And likely those earlier dreams will come true. It's building a sense of anticipation in the reader. Maybe this is the moment. Certainly this moment, only three days later, the cupbearer would remember him and maybe Joseph will be set free. God will be given the glory he's due for his power. Joseph will walk into the birthday party and say, I'm the one that said this. And it's all going to come together. But in verse 23, like we've often seen, it just doesn't work out the way that maybe we hope it does or maybe hour and a half long movies need to resolve the plot. So here's what it says. Verse 23, this is how the chapter ends. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now that's not good news, but maybe after all the party is done and maybe after he goes to sleep and remembers all that's been done, maybe then he'll remember him. Right? Maybe the next day he'll get up and he'll tell him and just gonna be a small delay. Well, how long until the cupbearer remembers him? It's in the next chapter. Two years. Two years. How long has Joseph been in this enslaved, in prison journey at this point? Probably about 11 years. Right, so this is over a decade of betrayal. With another two years tacked onto the backside of that, completely forgotten and ignored by the one he had just ministered to in compassion. Anyone ever done that? <laughs> Feel like you ministered, you poured out, you leaned towards someone, and you walk away and they forget you and discard you? Of course you do. It happens all the time because we're human beings trying to figure this thing out. He's thrown in a place he didn't deserve to be. He's forgotten by the very people he had served so faithfully. And in this moment, Joseph is pointing beyond himself. He's pointing beyond himself here to the suffering Savior who was sold, betrayed, beaten, mocked, crucified, and thrown into a pit where the religious leaders hoped he would simply be forgotten. That was their hope. Joseph is pointing beyond himself to the pattern of suffering that comes before redemption. The pattern of how our Savior, Jesus Christ, the innocent servant and the innocent son, the one rejected by his brothers, the one perfectly faithful to God in every moment, would come so that he could save all who would trust him. He's pointing beyond himself. In the rest of the story, the Bible says those he saves will walk this path with him, will share in his sufferings, will endure the way all his people have always endured, a path of waiting and suffering, a path of seeking to be faithful to serve in the strength he supplies while we wait and are sometimes forgotten or discarded, a path of faithfully following him even while sometimes being misunderstood 
or mischaracterized, even by those we've sought to love and to care for. Right? Have, have, have you experienced any of that in the last three or four years in our, our world? Mischaracterization, misunderstood people you love that now you're at odds with trying to figure out what happened, being discarded, frustrated, suffering. This is the walk of the Christian life. This is following in the footsteps of Jesus. And in this process, those he saves are shaped into his image as they walk with him. I remember, actually, this is a quote from Rick Shank, who's sitting right there, so it's sweet to get to share it with you. I remember getting trained up in seminary and going, man, where is God going to place me so I can be so helpful for these people? I just want to make his name great, bring his glory. I remember in a class, he said, God's going to put you wherever you need to be to be most sanctified. I thought, shoot. <laughs> but that's, that's been with me. <laughs> From from that day on, going, okay, that's what this life is. It's life of Jesus sanctifying wherever I'm at, whatever space and place I am, and by his grace is going to use me once in a while to sanctify others. So wherever you are, wherever you're waiting, wherever you're suffering, wherever you feel forgotten or discarded, he's shaping you. He's shaping you into a, a person who can have courage and compassion, who can faithfully seek to love God wherever you are and seek to love those around you towards Jesus wherever they are. But more important, this is the application, we're getting there, the reflection, more important than our faithfulness, which unlike Jesus, sometimes goes up and down, often goes up up and down, God's faithfulness never fails. Never fails. In this story, right, the question that the reader or the author keeps wanting to put before you is, has God forgotten? <laughs> is God gone? Is this another evidence that God is not with him? But God has shown himself powerful through Joseph over all other Egyptian gods on center stage at Pharaoh's birthday, and still somehow Joseph has been forgotten. So we just have to ask, what is going on? Why? God, show up. Show your power, work, get him out, get him out of prison, right? We have that prayer for others we know. Get him out of prison, right? Like, just do it, do something. And this day is one part of the story that's pointing forward to a day a little later in the story of God where he's going to bring his people to his presence in the book of Exodus, Right, this, this echo we're meant to hear in Exodus where God shows himself mighty over Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt to rescue his people from slavery to Egypt. And, and that story points forward to God rescuing his people from every people and every tongue from slavery to a variety of other gods and sin through his son. Again, we see these pointers in the story that make it a part of the bigger story because this whole book is one story of God getting his people to his place to enjoy his presence, a story with one author and one plot line and one promised outcome, all victory ultimately coming through Jesus. And it's important that even though these stories aren't the fun ones, that we get them and we let them sink deep into our souls. Why? Because in various times, in places, in history, it has looked like evil was winning and God's people were forgotten. If you've read any church history, that's looked like that almost all the time. 
of the church. Like we're in a very strange place where we feel things being taken and we feel very afraid, but like our existence and what's become normal for us is not what's normal for the church. In various times and in various places, if the church or God's faithfulness was measured by how famous or how cool it was to culture, it would have been a massive failure over and over again. And yet, God was always working. (laughs) He was always there. God is always faithful, even though it's not obvious and it's not in our timing. But we're still here. (laughs) The church is still here thousands of years later. Whole empires trying to snuff it out. Those empires have fallen and the church of Christ is still here because God is always working. God is with his people even in this place this morning so we can enjoy his presence. And as he's doing that, the story of Joseph leads to God preserving his people from famine, which leads to Jesus coming from that people, and Jesus died so that we could fully and freely and forever be forgiven. And if you've trusted in him, then you're part of this story. This story is your story, the story of God's always perfect, always moving forward faithfulness to get his people all the way home through betrayal, sin, suffering, and waiting. Right through whatever a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus can throw at us, through cancer, through suffering, through Huntington's disease, through whatever is going to come your way, Jesus reigns, (laughs) and Jesus keeps his people, and Jesus has purchased his people, and Jesus will work for his people in these hidden faithfulness that's not always in our time, that we can't always see, but is always happening, and therefore we are a humble, waiting, trusting, and hoping people. And we're a people who know this not because of circumstances or success, not because of loves or likes from the world, not because we have enough money or because we have perfect health, not because of recognition or respect. We're a people who don't need an identity from anywhere or anyone else. And I hope you, I hope you feel it as really good news. <laughs> You don't need to look anywhere else. You don't even need to look to yourself for your identity. You look to Jesus and you, you have it. We're a people who have read the story, been drawn into it by the Holy Spirit, and are now tethered to the cross, connected to the cross. Our death in Christ, our life in Christ, our union with Christ means that we know our God loves us and will bring us home because Jesus came and he lived the perfect life through suffering and through temptation and through death that we couldn't live. And he died the death we deserve to die to forgive our sins, was left to be forgotten, but instead rose again to conquer death and bring us eternal life now and forever. We wait with hope for him as he works his story in us and through us and eventually brings us all the way home where every tear will be wiped away and we will worship him Forever. So wherever you're at this morning, in your waiting, in your suffering, in your brokenness, in injustice, whatever is going on, the Lord is working. The Lord is for you. He's paid for your sins. Surely he'll complete the good work to get you all the way home. Let's pray. So Lord, we do pray now, as we're going to come and eat and drink with you, that you'd remind us how great our salvation is, that you'd remind us that in the moments where we can't 
quite see how it's going to work out in the moments where we have hopes that don't come to fruition when we want them to, in the moments where suffering and sin and rejection and feeling forgotten just feels overwhelming, Lord, would you remind us that our hope and our joy and our identity and our eternal life are completely and utterly secure and unshakable in Jesus Christ. The one who came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die and rose again to conquer death. The one who gave us his spirit to keep us. And the one who, like Daniel said at the beginning of the welcome, is going to return soon to wipe away every tear and make all things new. We trust in him. We hope in him. We wait for him. And we know because of Jesus, because of the cross, because our sins are paid for, because we're in Christ, that Father, when you look at us, you look at us like you look at your son. You love us. You're for us. You're working in our waiting. You're working when we can't see it. You're working in hidden ways and in hidden places to bring about your purposes for us and for your church. And Lord, you will get every one of us home and you'll accomplish all your purposes and all your promises in Jesus Christ. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.